Please pray with me. Everlasting God, author of life, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's a very humbling experience walking into a library or a bookstore, surrounded by thousands of books, millions of pages, billions of words, rivers of endless knowledge. A person cannot help but realize how little they really know. I get a similar feeling from looking at the modest bookshelf in my office, filled with texts that I've only dabbled in or used for reference. It's true that I possess an almost encyclopedic knowledge of some subjects, but the detailed history of 80s rock music isn't especially useful for a preacher. And at the end of the day, I have to admit that there's just a whole lot that I don't know, a whole lot that I've never learned and never will. Nonetheless, I enjoy libraries and bookstores a great deal. Swimming in that vast sea of books, I am humbled, it's true, but I am also filled with a sense of wonder and curiosity, imagining all of the stories and knowledge that lie in wait on those shelves. I seldom have the time to read as much as I would like to, but I'd really like nothing more than to be locked inside Barnes & Noble for a year, dining on Starbucks croissants and coffee and reading to my heart's content. I mean, it's not Dunkin' Donuts, but I'll take what I can get. The author Haruki Murakami depicts something a bit like this in his novel Kafka on the Shore. Here in this story, a young runaway lands a job in a small library in a seaside town. He actually lives there uh, for a while at the library and he spends most of his time reading whatever book he happens to grab off the shelf. History, fiction, philosophy, science, whatever. And there's something oddly compelling reading a book about someone else reading a book. It almost makes you wonder if someone else is at this very moment reading a book about you, leafing through its yellowing pages a story written by an author of unknown provenance. The author of life. That's what Peter calls Jesus in this text from the book of Acts. It's a curious choice of words. The actual word Peter uses in the original Greek text is archegos, which is more typically translated as a leader or a prince, not so much an author as an authority. Though it goes without saying that those two words, author and authority, share the same etymology. Peter is describing Jesus here in cosmic terms. The catalyst, the spark, the origin of life itself, its source and its master, its author and its authority. The writer of the human story and other stories, perhaps, that we will never know. Jesus, the man so humble and quite literally down to earth, that we sometimes forget what he really was. Jesus was God's attempt to cross the cosmic gulf 
that separates the creator from its creation, divinity from humanity. And while God is also imminent and in us and a part of us, that gulf is nonetheless vast. Its furthest reach is so far beyond our comprehension that it cannot even be imagined, much less understood or described. The universe is a big place. A couple years ago, Elon Musk launched a Tesla Roadster into outer space, as you may recall. The publicity stunt was inspired by the 1981 animated sci-fi film Heavy Metal, in which the opening credits feature an astronaut driving a 1960 Chevy Corvette across the stars to the tune of a song by Don Felder, also called Heavy Metal. Now, personally, I think Sammy Hagar's I Can't Drive 55 would have been a better choice, but at least old Sammy still ended up on the movie's soundtrack. Guess that rock and roll trivia comes in handy in the pulpit after all. Anyway, this is all to say that I was watching a YouTube video with my son Levi not long ago about the sheer scale of the known universe. And taking a cue from Elon Musk, it imagined how long it would take to drive a car to the moon if you were going 60 miles per hour. Because when you drive into the moon, you can't drive 55. Anyway, I learned that it would take about six months to drive to the moon. That's a pretty long haul. But the video doesn't stop there. The narrator goes on to calculate the distance to Mars, a little over 200 years. Jupiter, Pluto, well beyond the confines of our solar system. And by the time the car leaves the Milky Way galaxy, it's been traveling for billions of years. Incalculable distances across the vast gulfs of outer space. The author H.P. Lovecraft famously wrote that we live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it is not meant that we should voyage far. Someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Lovecraft believed that the universe is at best indifferent to humanity and at worst malevolent. We may be tempted to call that space that surrounds us empty and uncaring because it's devoid of human life or any life that we know of. But those distant reaches of the universe are filled with beauty. Shimmering stars, nebulas bursting with colors, burning suns that dwarf our own, and a diversity of planets the likes of which cannot be imagined, all of it composed by the author of life. Maybe the universe itself is alive, humming with divine energy, or as I like to call it, love. You see, this is not an amoral universe that we occupy, as some would believe. It is not a cold, uncaring place for all of its seemingly alien vastness. That's what Jesus came to tell us, that we are loved, and that we are called to love one another because that love is, quite literally, what makes the world go round. 
Whenever I set foot in a library, I'm reminded of the short story, The Library of Babel, by the surrealist author, George Luis Borges. Now in this bizarre writing, he describes an infinite library that is synonymous with the whole universe, a place where whole societies live and die, where mad prophets dream up their own religions, and where intrepid pilgrims venture into distant, uncharted aisles in search of holy books. The universe, which others call the library, he writes, is composed of an indefinite and perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries, the vast air shafts between surrounded by very low railings. From any of the hexagons, one can see interminably the upper and lower floors. Light is provided by some spherical fruits which bear the name of lamps. There are two in each hexagon. The light they emit is insufficient, incessant. In Borges' ruminations on the library, he describes various attempts to find meaning in its sprawling collection of texts. You see, most of them are completely indecipherable, random combinations of all possible letters and languages. It is true that the most ancient men, the first librarians, he muses, used a language quite different from the one we now speak. It is true that a few miles to the right, the tongue is dialectical, and that 90 floors farther up, it is incomprehensible. Borges writes of various cults and sects that have sprung up in the library, some of them believing in a sacred book that lies at the heart of the place, a cipher that will make sense of all the gibberish. He writes of desperate men who go in search of it, never to return. A blasphemous sect, the narrator recalls, suggested that the searches should cease and that all men should juggle letters and symbols until they constructed by an improbable gift of chance these canonical books. The authorities were obliged to issue severe orders. The sect disappeared, but in my childhood, I have seen old men who for long periods of time would hide in the latrines with some metal discs in a forbidden dice cup and feebly mimic the divine disorder. Friends, the library is, in its final analysis, a place devoid of both meaning and purpose. It is an amoral universe. Its inhabitants crave answers to the fundamental questions of existence, but they are left to their own devices. For them, there is no revelation, no savior. For them, there is no God. Our universe, on the other hand, is a moral one. Unlike the books of Borges' library, our universe has an author. We have revelation in scripture, a savior in Jesus, and there is a God whose love is the very engine of existence. As small as we are in the infinite vistas of space, God loves us. The author of life cares and weeps when life is taken whether by a deadly virus, or another mass shooting, or a fatal traffic stop, or on a cross. Peter wants us to understand this, that ours is a moral universe authored by God, and therefore we must not repeat or succumb to the violence on display at Golgotha. Repent, he tells us, and turn to God.
There is much that we will never understand, no matter how many books we read. But the good book, as it were, tells us enough. It tells us what we really need to know. I suspect that in writing the Library of Babel, Borges was attempting an allegory about our own universe, our own reality. And some of it, indeed, may sound chillingly familiar. I know of districts, he laments, in which the young men prostrate themselves before books and kiss their pages in a barbarous manner, but they do not know how to decipher a single letter. Epidemics, heretical conflicts, peregrinations which inevitably degenerate into banditry have decimated the population. Perhaps my old age and fearfulness deceive me, but I suspect that the human species is about to be extinguished, that the library will endure, illuminated, solitary, indefinite, infinite, perfectly motionless, equipped with precious volumes, useless. But that is not our universe. Our universe is not so wretched and bleak. Our universe is one of purpose and meaning, even if we cannot decipher it all. For ours is written by the author of life. And the end of our story is yet to be told. Amen.